Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today we're going to be in the second chapter of 2 Corinthians. That's Paul's second letter that we have record of uh, to the church at Corinth. And we're picking up kind of after the introduction to the letter and starting to get into him setting up the larger discussion of what's covered in 2 Corinthians. So I'm glad you could join us on this journey. If it's your first time with us as we travel through God's word together, seeking to truly grasp hold of scripture, well, welcome aboard. And I would encourage you back up. Uh, We've laid some groundwork for the context of the book that we're studying, um, the book of the Bible that we're studying. And you know, that groundwork can maybe help you understand how things fit together. So I encourage you, if you haven't been with us for chapter one, you might back up and cover that. But welcome aboard. And as we begin to turn our attention towards God's word today, let's go ahead and turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you have given us your word, that it speaks to our hearts and it calls us to greater obedience to you and understanding of who you created us to be and how you desire us to live. Father, we thank you for Jesus the Christ, who died for our sin, bringing us salvation and a right relationship with you, that we do not have to go through this life just trying to figure it out on our own and hoping we get enough of it right, but that we can have faith because we have placed our hope and trust in you. Thank you for that gift of salvation. Thank you for your love for us. Now help us to hear your word today and to understand it and apply it to our lives. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Pray. Amen. Well, as we begin in chapter 2, need to um, look at the situation a little bit. Paul has moved out of the introduction phase of the format of a first century Greco-Roman letter and is moving more into the body of the letter. Here, Paul begins to discuss with the church uh, why he delayed a little bit in coming and also, um, well, why it was so hard for him to write the previous letter to them. But he's also going to take them on a journey through what it is to live out the love of Christ in relationship to a a member of their congregation that, well, that wasn't following Christ with his life and had to be disciplined. But he's going to also emphasize forgiveness and restoration there as well. And so we're going to delve into all of these themes and, and topics and um, even look at how Paul views his own apostolic ministry and how he encourages them out of that ministry. So let's take a look at chapter 2. He begins it this way, and I'm actually going to back up into chapter 1 a little bit and start in verse 23 so that uh, we see the carryover into the first and second verses of chapter 2. He says, now I call upon God as my witness that I am telling the truth. The reason I didn't return to Corinth was to spare you from a severe rebuke. But that does not mean we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith in the practice. We want to work together with you so that you will be full of joy, for it is by your own faith that you stand firm. And then as we move into chapter two, he says, so I decided that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit. 
That begs the question, when was his previous painful visit? Well, there seems to have been a quick visit between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Um, And we'll see reference to the visit, but not a whole lot of detail about when that was. He says, so I decided that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit. For if I cause you grief, who will make me glad? Certainly not someone I have grieved. So he's talking about wanting to maintain his relationship with the church there at Corinth and wanting them to continue to be an encouragement to him and a joy to him. And that his going through with the planned visit would not have fostered that, would not have uh, moved things forward in that direction. And so that wasn't what he felt he should do. And he, he held off from making that visit. And some of them were upset. Some of them were, were trying to uh, blast him for that. And as we saw in our study of chapter one, trying to uh, attack his integrity, uh, claiming he was dishonest or something along those lines. But um, Paul, he holds his own against attacks like that and kind of puts all the reasons out there on the table for him. Now, as we get into verse three, we're going to look at this previous letter, and uh, this isn't necessarily First Corinthians. We're not entirely clear on this this previous letter necessarily. It seems to have uh, possibly been an additional letter that that dealt with a particular person that needed to be disciplined. Now, I know there's the guy in chapter five of the last one, but um, this seems to be something different. This is someone who at that visit stood against Paul and was divisive in the church. But let's go ahead and look, starting in verse three. It says, that is why I wrote to you as I did, so that when I do come, I won't be grieved by the very ones who ought to give me the greatest joy. Surely you all know that my joy comes from your being joyful. I wrote that letter in great anguish, with a troubled heart and many tears. I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. Now, he presents an interesting principle there and an important principle. Uh, I know people talk about tough love and sometimes that's just an excuse for, I don't know, all sorts of things, I suppose. But Paul is talking about living out the love he has for the Corinthian church. He wants them to know how much love he has for them. And so that being the case, he wrote this letter because, well, because he loved them, he needed to confront them because some of what they were doing was destructive to themselves and to their fellowship as a church. And he needed to confront them and call them to action on that. Uh, We have this mistaken idea in our modern world that if we love somebody, we condone everything they do. And we just, I don't know, somehow become thoughtless. Yes. Men, yes. Voices, yes. Responses, you know, the whole echo chamber concept. Um, That is not what it is to love someone. To love someone doesn't mean you always agree with them and tell them everything they do is wonderful. Uh, sometimes if they're doing something that's destructive to themselves and to others, you, if you love them, you're going to step in and you're going to say, hey, you know, this isn't your best choice here. 
And we seem to have lost sight of that. Well, the church at Corinth seemed to be in danger of losing sight of that too. And so Paul had to write them this letter. And, you know, he admits this, this is not the fun letter he wanted to write. In fact, he didn't want to write this letter. He wrote this letter in great anguish, with a troubled heart and many tears. Uh, as a pastor, I can tell you that's not the kind of message you want to have to deliver to your congregants, you know, to those you've been entrusted with the spiritual shepherding of. Um, it it rips your heart out. But sometimes for their good, it is necessary. Paul acknowledges that. He says, I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. In fact, scripture even talks about God disciplining us and that if he didn't discipline us, we wouldn't be his. Um, He wouldn't care about us, that it is part of shaping who we are for our benefit. Now, as we pick up in verse 5, he talks about the resolution of what he had to call him on the carpet for. He said, I am not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to refrain, or excuse me, not refrain. Wow, I can read. Uh, So I urge you now to reaffirm. There we go. Bit different meaning there. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. Who? He's talking about the church having exercised church discipline on this individual how his actions hurt the church and the church had to take action in dealing with him. And what they did was they withdrew fellowship. They exercised church discipline. And he says, you know, most of you opposed him and that punishment was enough. Well, how does he say that punishment was enough? Because it yielded result. You see, discipline is to train us. Church discipline is to bring us to a point of repentance and right relationship. It's not to crush us, to destroy us, to say we don't care about you anymore. In fact, just the opposite. It says we care enough about you that we are taking this drastic action to bring you back. And Paul is saying, look, it was enough. It proved to be enough punishment. Verse 7, now, however, it's time to forgive and comfort him. It's not just about punishing him, it was never about punishing necessarily. It was about disciplining. It's intended to have a redemptive outcome. And if it's going to have a redemptive outcome, they've reached that point where he is penitent for his sins against the congregation and against God, that it is time for the congregation to forgive him and comfort him. Now, this isn't an optional statement. The exercise of uh, church discipline, as we see it in Scripture, has to be followed by a willingness of those disciplining to forgive and comfort, to restore, to bring back into the fold 
to embrace the one that has been the object of that discipline. Why? Well, Paul goes on. He says, otherwise he may be overcome by discouragement. Uh, What would that mean for the church at Corinth if they were the cause of one of their brothers being overcome by discouragement? Um, That's not a good thing. And so he says, so I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. Going on in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you as I did to test you and see if you would fully comply with my instructions. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit. So that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. So, he's talking about redemption and and restorative behavior towards this individual. But he's also talking about the value of that activity for the church. The church exercising forgiveness and restoration means that they, number one, are complying with Paul's instructions. They are being obedient to their spiritual leader, but also that they are carrying out that act of forgiveness that Christ commands them to do. So in being obedient to the one God has set over them, Paul, and being obedient to Christ, their Savior, they are not providing an opportunity for Satan to outsmart them. They are not giving a foothold to bitterness, anger, hatred. They are not giving a foothold to Satan in their hearts. Because as Paul points out, we're familiar with his evil schemes. The devil is not very creative. He's been telling the same lies and peddling the same nonsense since the garden. We saw it with Adam and Eve in the garden. We saw it with Jesus in the wilderness when he was tempted. And we see it every day in our own lives. And the antidote to standing against Satan isn't we learn all of his tricks. The antidote to standing against Satan or the key to standing against Satan is that we stand with Christ and we live under his authority. And that that is to our benefit. And so Paul encourages them to forgive. It says, if you forgive him, I forgive him too. In fact, I'm not just forgiving him. I'm forgiving him with the authority of Christ for your benefit so that Satan won't outsmart us for we are familiar with his evil schemes. Now, Paul here begins to explain some of his travel itineraries, starting in verse 12, uh, in fact, 12 and 13. And then he shifts gears. He digresses from talking about his travels and talking about Titus, and he won't come back to that topic again until, mm, I believe it's chapter 7. So we'll, we'll retouch on that. But starting in 12, he says, back to his traveling, he said, When I came to the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened the door of opportunity for me, or a door of opportunity for me. Uh, now, when was this? Well, he had written a letter and sent it to Corinth with Titus. 
and he was so eager for Titus's response. Titus was taking a while getting back, so uh, he went to Troas, and and well, as as we're about to see as we read on in the text, uh, he got tired of waiting. He he just couldn't couldn't wait. And so we went on to Macedonia to try to meet up with Titus. Um, this would have fallen during the time period when uh, the riots against the Christians had taken place in Ephesus. You know, the silversmiths and the and the Jews rose up and were rioting against the Christians. And uh, at that point, Paul would have left Ephesus and gone to Troas to wait. But notice what's happening just in these two verses. I've only read the first. He said, when I came to the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ. Now, why is he there to preach the good news of Christ? He says, the Lord opened the door of opportunity for me. And God does that. He goes ahead of us. He opens the doors of opportunity for his gospel to be proclaimed. Our job is to just be faithful and do it. But then we get to 13. He said, but I had no peace of mind because my dear brother Titus hadn't yet arrived with a report from you. So I said goodbye, and I went on to Macedonia to find him. Now, this is interesting. And I I say that because we're talking about the Apostle Paul here, but we're also talking about uh, something that can be indicative and maybe sometimes prescriptive for us as believers in our walk with Christ and our, our obedience to him in following him. He's saying, look, I went to this city to proclaim the good news of Christ. The Lord opened a door of opportunity for me there, but there was a problem. And what was that problem? Was it a lack of opportunity? Was it a lack of clarity of mission? He knew the clarity of the mission. He was there to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he knew there was opportunity because he flat out says, God opened the door of opportunity for me. But verse 13, But I had no peace of mind, because my dear brother Titus hadn't yet arrived with a report from you. He's saying, Corinth, you were weighing so heavy on my mind that I could not find peace and I could not carry out the task that I was in Troas for, given opportunity by God to pursue in Troas. I couldn't do it because I had no peace of mind. You see, it's not just about clarity of mission, and it's not just about opportunity provided by God to pursue that mission. It's also about the state of our own hearts. And I'm not saying Paul was wrong in this. I think Paul was pretty self-aware in this to say, yeah, God opened the doors and I was there to do this. I just couldn't. I just had no peace of mind because something else was weighing too heavily on me. That something else being that report back from the church at Corinth. And so what did he do? He says, so I said goodbye And I went on to Macedonia to find him, that is to find Titus, and receive that report. He decided he needed to deal with that obstacle in his own mind and heart so that he could be effective in the mission and at the opportunities God was giving him. 
Sometimes in our own lives, there are things we need to take care of. I had Jesus even talked about this when he talked about going to the altar to make your offering to God and having something uh, between you and your brother. Then you need to leave your offering there and go deal with your brother, then come back and make your offering before God. Uh, Sometimes we need to clean the air, clear the air of our own hearts and our own minds to truly be effective in following and serving God. Paul is doing that right here in these two verses. But he gives us that nugget. And then, like I say, he doesn't revisit this issue of going to find Titus until we get to chapter 7. So what does he talk about in the meantime? Well, he starts by talking about his ministry. Starting in verse 14, he talks about what it is to be a minister of the new covenant and his own apostolic ministry. He says, but I thank God he has made us his captives and he continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere, like a sweet perfume. Our lives are like, excuse me, our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those that are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. And who is adequate for such a task as this? Hmm. Paul's using some imagery there that may not register with us, but the church at Corinth would have understood it immediately. You see, in the Roman Empire, when Roman generals went out to war and when they they were victorious in battle, they would bring back the defeated, especially the leadership and, and the soldiers of the Uh, defeated troops that they battled. And they would do this victory parade upon their return. And they'd march through the main streets of the city with, you know, usually the victorious general would be maybe on a chariot or wagon or something at the front of it. And he would be receiving all the accolades. And then in rows behind him in the street in in shackles would be the defeated enemies, the vanquished foes. And not only that, but to symbolize their victory along this parade route, the Romans would burn incense. It is uh, quite literally that sweet smell of victory uh, was the intent there. And understand, to the Romans, to those that were victorious, even to the Roman people, it was cause of celebration. When they smelled that smell and when they saw that procession, it was a sign of strength. It was a sign of victory. It was a sign of security. It was the opposite of all those things to the people in the parade, to those defeated enemies who were being marched to their death either straight executions or to death in the Colosseum. For them, this was humiliating. It was horrifying. And instead of the sweet smell of victory from that incense burning, that incense spoke to them of death. 
and destruction. Now, in light of that being what this passage is talking about and how it would have been perceived by those folks in the church at Corinth, listen to the verses again. But I thank God. He has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. See, Paul's using that imagery, but he's shifting it a bit, going, hey, we're the guys in the parade. We are the guys following. We've been subjugated by Christ. He is victorious, and we follow him now. As captives led to freedom, but he has made us his captives, and he continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now, he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere. So instead of going to execution, we have now been given the task as missionaries. We are to go and spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere, like sweet perfume. Remember, the perfume to the Roman people would have smelled like victory. It would have smelled like security and strength. We are to go out and be that perfume to this world for Christ. Verse 15, our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those that are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and, and doom. Now, why would that be? Because we proclaim the message of the gospel. We proclaim salvation in Christ. And if they reject that, if they choose to be enemies of that message, they have chosen to be enemies of God. And, and so what that witness is, is a message of death and doom instead of a message of, of life and victory, a message of salvation. And what makes all the difference is their response, their choice, whether to accept the forgiveness found in Christ or to reject it. We being witnesses of that gospel, we being witnesses of Christ in this world, who are to go out and be a Christ-like fragrance Well, for those rejecting Christ, it's not something good. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. To those that do respond to the gospel, it is a gratefully received thing. It is an encouraging thing. And so Paul finishes that little segment by saying, and who is adequate for such a task as this? See, God has chosen us. We're not adequate, but he has made us his messengers. He has called us to the task, and he has sent us on this mission, as he has Paul. Now we get to the last verse of chapter 2. It says, you see, we are not like 
the many hucksters who preach for personal profit. We preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. Now, some manuscripts will say, instead of the many hucksters, it'll say like um, the rest of the hucksters or that sort of thing. It's um, just translation issues, but the, the meaning is clear. And Paul is talking about himself. He's talking about all those in the apostolic ministry, um, those that have been sent out with this message to go and to tell. He said, you see, we are not like the many hucksters. Because apparently there's quite a few people in that day and age that are going around proclaiming messages, and many of them are doing it for personal gain. Uh, they're, they're doing it to enrich themselves or to gain influence and power over other people. And, well, gosh, go back and read verses 14 through 16. Uh, it's real obvious that's not what it's about. But there's some that are doing it that way. And Paul is making it clear, hey, don't lump us in with that. You see, we are not like the many hucksters. There is nothing in this that talks about personal gain. But we're not like the many hucksters who preach for personal profit. We preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. There's an accountability there. When you find someone who is in right relationship with God, when you find a godly individual who is proclaiming the word of God, then there are some hallmarks to that. One is they preach, number one, the word of God, and they do it with sincerity. They also do it with Christ's authority. They're not speaking from their own wisdom or their own authority. They're speaking with Christ's authority. And they also do it understanding they are accountable before God. It is a weight to know that when you stand up and proclaim the word of God, you are handling the word of God and relating it to people to help them understand. It is not something to take lightly. It's not something to be flippant about. Now, styles vary. Approaches vary. That's fine. God uses our personalities and the way he made us to relate his word to different people. But if you find somebody that doesn't care how they handle God's word, they're just like, you know, whatever. And they twist it and use it to say anything they want. And they're doing things, you know, especially blatantly in our modern world to enrich themselves instead of it being about proclaiming the word of God. Um, let there be warning signs. Let there be red flags going up. And if you seek to proclaim God's word, if you seek to, to teach his word or to preach, then I encourage you, preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. 
And as believers and followers of Christ, aren't we all called to go and to proclaim? To go and tell and make disciples and teach them to obey all that he has commanded? Let's do it with sincerity. Let's do it with the authority of Christ. And let's do it knowing that God is watching us. Go and live for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the gift of your word, that we may study it, that we may share it, and that through it we may know you better and know more of what you desire of our lives, your will for us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus the Christ, our atoning sacrifice, that we might have this right relationship with you and that we might live in such a way as to glorify you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.